Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my, mo my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple weeks ago on a Sunday morning, I was right in the middle of a sermon in this very room. And I can't always say this, but on this particular Sunday, it did seem to be going quite well. Uh, I felt like I was in the flow. You guys seemed to be tracking. And then right there in the, in the momentum of it all, someone from our hospitality team who had been greeting at the door came in the back and, and called out to me, interrupting, Tyler, your mom and little brother are here. They want to talk to you. Now, my mom and younger brother live on the East Coast, so this would have taken a lot of effort. And if they did show up like that, it would have to be something really important. But remember what I said, the sermon was going particularly well. So I said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Here are my mother and my brothers. And then I continued on with the sermon, and the greeter helped my family back to the airport. <laughs> now, obviously, that story is fictitious. But if that had happened, and you had watched it happen, I imagine that you'd be pretty put off by my response to my folks. You'd probably find it hard just to jump right back into the teaching. Wouldn't you be thinking about my mom and how she might be feeling right now? Wouldn't you be reevaluating me and your perception of me and everything that you had ever thought about me? If we're going to see what Jesus is doing and hear what he's saying in Matthew 12, it's probably going to have to start with us acknowledging that God incarnate, the gentle and lowly friend of sinners, seems at first glance to be unattractively rude right here. Don't run from that. Follow it and see where it might lead you. So what's going on here? I mean, is Jesus venting some childhood frustration about an overbearing mom? Is Jesus so serious about his teaching that he can fly off the handle at just a single interruption. Is Jesus slipping? Is he losing his nerve? The tension of redeeming the entirety of the human race finally wearing him down? Or is Jesus saying and doing something profound? Profoundly good, but lost in translation across the centuries and hemispheres that divide our world from his. So profoundly good, in fact, that apart from seeing him like those first century Jews saw him in that room and hearing him through their ancient ears, we might miss a crucial aspect of redemption, of the redemption of the whole world, but also the redemption of me. You see, this moment that we just read, it's recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's all three synoptic gospels. That puts it in pretty exclusive company. Scholars seem to form consensus around the fact that there's about 30 events or teachings that fit into that category, and this is a two-for-one. This is both a teaching and an event. That means that this is the furthest thing from a moment that we just shrug our shoulders at and move on from. In fact, this is a moment that Jesus' ancient biographers thought was essential for understanding who he is and what he's doing in the world, all of which should just add intrigue to the question, who is my mother and who are my brothers? What on earth could this possibly mean? And how is it that the ancients might have heard so essentially what we probably hear wincingly 
and dismissively. Jesus claims that the whole of his life is the fulfillment of the whole of the Bible. He claims that if we're going to properly interpret his life, then we have to understand the events of his life within the broader story that he's fulfilling. Who is my mother and who are my brothers is a question Jesus poses that reaches all the way back to Genesis and all the way forward to Revelation, pulling the cosmic story of human history into a rural Israelite village in somebody's living room where he was offering a teaching. So, you are definitely going to need that Bible that is on your lap. And I would recommend just marking the page at Matthew 12 because this is the center of the story that we're going to be tracing. But we're going to have to trace the story as broadly as Jesus was tugging at it from beginning to end so that we can see and hear Jesus as the ancients did. And we're going to chop up the whole of the Bible today in these four familiar parts, creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. And when we get back to that rural Israelite living room, what reads as offensive or off-putting from our perspective will be discovered to be beautiful in the eyes and the ears of the crowd who heard it from him. So with that, turn all the way back to the start with me. Genesis chapter 1, and get ready to thumb through some pages, because we're going to work quickly. So we'll begin with creation. The most famous opening line of the Bible uh, is the introduction of Scripture's main character, and it reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in this line, and the few that immediately follow it, there's something mysterious going on with the central character that's being introduced. Within the opening line of Genesis, or opening lines of Genesis, we receive three portraits of God. God, the Elohim in Hebrew, who creates the heavens and the earth. Then there is the Spirit of God, or the Spirit within the Elohim, who fills and permeates the whole of the creation that is unfolding. And then finally, the creative agent, or the Word of God, through whom Elohim is authoring and ordering creation. So God is introduced on page one, paragraph one of the biblical story as an incomprehensible mystery. One being in three persons, completely one, but also in community. One God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. The profound revelation written into the mystery of the way that Scripture introduces us to the Creator is this, that God at the very center of His person is inherently communal. But even to state it that way isn't quite far enough. It's more like God in the very center of His person is inherently community. And there are many religions out there that worship a singular God, and there's many other religions that worship many gods, but Christianity is distinct from all spiritualities It's in, in its embrace of the Trinity, of three persons in one God. Skip with me now to verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The poetic cadence of Genesis creation builds and builds until at last God creates people, man and woman, set apart from his creation of night and day, land and sea, plants and animals, and this, that they bear the image of the creator himself. Keep reading the very next verse. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So God put his image in us and then he blesses us to act like him in the world. And the first line of that blessing is, 
be fruitful and increase in number. Now, God is community. A, 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 he's, he's then blesses us to create a community, to create an earthly reflection of his heavenly Trinitarian character, a community that would flourish within his creation of perfect, united relationship of mutual love and submission. God filled us with his image and then blessed us to go on acting like him and spreading his image across his creation. Turn with me now just one page in your Bibles, and we're going to look together at Genesis chapter 3. This is part 2, the fall. Now, the famous story of creation then is quickly followed by the infamous story of corruption. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, the way that original sin gets depicted in Genesis is quite telling. Uh, Eve is deceived by a serpent who chips away at her trust in God, convincing her that the fullest, freest kind of life is found not in trusting God, but rather than in grabbing control. Eve believes a lie. She acts on that lie, eating the forbidden fruit, and Adam follows suit. So, hang on. Original sin is both personal and communal in nature. In the words of author and theologian Mike Mason, original sin did not enter into the comparative simplicity of Adam's solitary life in paradise, but rather into the complex world of relationships. The essential task at which man failed was not that of living in peace with God, but of living in peace with another person before God in the presence of temptation. Read on from there. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Immediately after the intrusion of original sin, we discovered this, that sin is a condition with both vertical and horizontal consequences. So sin has vertical consequences between me and God, symbolized later when Adam and Eve hide from God behind the brush. But sin also has horizontal consequences between me and you, symbolized by Adam and Eve reaching for fig leaves to hide from each other. The church of our time has tended to major on the vertical consequences, the breach between me and God that is wrought by sin. But equally true and equally troubling are the horizontal consequences the breach between me and you that is wrought by the same sin. Sin is a good and loving creator who all of a sudden seems distant and mysterious and hard to know, hard to trust. And sin is war between nations. And it's racism within societies. Sin is food spoiling tonight in the fridge of the rich while a child in the same city goes hungry. Sin is the falling out that I had with a friend or the distance that just grew silently in my marriage over the years. Sin is treating my own need for acceptance through gossiping about someone else. And sin is the awkward dance I do to avoid that one person from this church ever since that one thing happened. Sin is the breakdown of the image and blessing of God that he put within us to distinguish us from the whole of creation. It is the corruption of what we were blessed to do in the first place. Be an image here on earth of his heavenly Trinitarian communal character. 
And the intrusion of sin in Genesis 3 is then followed by the effect of sin in the very next chapter, Genesis 4, when Cain, in a complex act of jealousy, murders his brother Abel. It's a more violent repetition of exactly what happened with the forbidden fruit of chapter before. He fails to live in peace with another person before God in the face of temptation. A sinful act which is followed by that famous haunting question, am I my brother's keeper? Based on the Genesis blessing to bear God's image, his communal image, the answer is obviously yes, you are. But sin has made what was created obvious, warped, distorted, and deceived. And these two brothers are the beginning of a biblical pattern. Cain and Abel are then followed by Jacob and Esau, by Joseph and his brothers, by Moses and Aaron and Miriam, all of whom are siblings, by David and his brothers, and then by David's children, Amon, Tamar, and Absalom first, and then Solomon and Adonijah later. A pattern of sibling rivalry unfolds in the scriptures, the breakdown of God's communal image in God's people within a sin-corrupted creation. And this brings us to part three, redemption. Now, part three of the biblical drama is both the bulk of the story and it's the part that you and I are still living in today. And because this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time, I want to make it digestible by breaking it down into three bites. Israel, Jesus, and church. So first, there's Israel. The first set of biblical brothers, Cain and Abel, are the beginning of a biblical pattern, right? Right? Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Moses and his siblings, David and his brothers, and then David's children. But these very people who are riddled with the disease of sin are also a part of the remedy of sin. You see, throughout Old Testament history, God is working redemption in and through the very people who are both victimized by the corruption of sin and perpetrating the corruption of sin. God is healing the world through the sick. And that's very good news. Through the bloodline of the sinful, God sends a savior. He promises that one will come who will live in peace with others before God right in the presence of temptation. So turn with me now all the way to the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew chapter two. I'm gonna meet you in Matthew chapter two in just a second. But while you find that place, I wanna talk to you about something that's been bugging me for a while. What happened to all the rom-coms? Right? You guys remember romantic comedies? It's like a whole genre of film that dominated the 90s that just vanished. It's like someone who left a party early and then no one knows where they went. Right? And, and I walk around the streets of Portland and they tell me in every possible way that the 90s are back, baby. Right? I'm like, Skechers and mom jeans and frosted tips and champion sweatpants. It's everywhere. The 90s are everywhere except for the rom-coms. Yesterday's romantic comedies have been replaced by today's coming-of-age stories. A genre in the film industry that had been gaining momentum for a while, and then the 2017 film Lady Bird soared in popularity and nearly snuck in in one best picture, and with that, coming-of-age stories are here to stay. Self-discovery is the new romance. Right, a camera panning away while the soundtrack kicks in on an individual who has overcome some internal obstacle at the end of the film is the new Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks finally get together at the end of You've Got Mail. <laughs> Self-discovery is the new romance. 
In fact, the biggest romantic comedy of the last decade was Ticket to Paradise, which starred George Clooney and Julia Roberts, stars from the boomer generation, because the target audience wasn't the Portland 20-somethings who are ironically reliving the 90s through their fashion. It was those who actually lived through the 90s and are looking for a little bit of nostalgia from a different time, because that's not our time anymore. And none of that, by the way, is meant to be a cultural critique. It's just a cultural observation, right? Glamorized self-discovery is no better or worse than glamorized romantic discovery. It's just different. I'm commenting as a neutral observer just to point out that the deep ache and the questions people ask tend to shift across cultures and generations. And so if we're going to hear what Jesus is saying accurately, we need to ask, what is Jesus' time? What is the deep ache that people felt and the questions that they were asking? What was his culture and the world that he came of age in? And might that help us see him in that rural Israelite living room and hear him with the ears of the ancients? So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Egypt. His parents fled as refugees after his birth to escape uh, the tyrannical reign of the ruler Herod. And then by the time we get to Matthew chapter 2, Herod has died, but his, and his son has taken the throne. And so Mary and Joseph are making their way from refugee escape back, back home to Israel, only they don't make it back home. Why not? Matthew chapter 2, read along with me in verse 22. But when he, meaning Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew the, to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Now, the question you should be asking when you read a verse like this one is, why is Joseph afraid of Archelaus? And that little question, that is a rabbit hole that will take you to one of the most essential things to learn about Jesus, something so essential that it will unwind the deeper meaning between some of the more confusing things Jesus ever said. You see, Archelaus turned out to be even worse than his father Herod. Several thousand Israelites formally appeared in Rome before Augustus to try to get him impeached at one point. And he was so bad that not even his own family members were willing to defend him in that trial. But, and do not miss this, neither were they willing to join in blowing the whistle on him either. According to the historian Josephus, in the first century Greco-Roman world, there was no greater cultural wrong than to turn your back on a brother or sister, no matter what they've done. And the history backs that up. Archelaus had to travel to Rome to show up on his own witness stand, and in his absence, a group of Jews back in Israel led a revolt, and Augustus dismissed the charges against all of the rioters entirely, except those who were blood relatives of Archelaus. They got the death penalty. Why? Because to go against your brother or sister was thought to be even worse than to be a political tyrant or to lead a riot. You see, in the world Jesus grew up in, there was no greater sin than disloyalty to blood relatives. For example, uh, Herod at one point got caught in a bind between his wife and his sister, probably a little holiday drama or something, I don't know. And, and he, as a result, put his wife to death because blood runs deeper than matrimony in first century Israel. And then famously, Octavia was forced to choose between her husband, Mark Antony, and uh, her brother, Octavian, and she left her husband to stand by her brother. This is the world that Jesus grew up in. The tightest bond in Jesus' world was not marriage. 
It was not a world where romantic love triumphs over all, but neither was it a world of coming-of-age self-discovery. Jesus' world was profoundly familial in a way that is so foreign for us today, it's difficult for us to grasp. The strongest bond and the greatest loyalty in Jesus' world was the blood relationship between siblings, and that loyalty trumped everything else. And when we can understand that about Jesus' world, it can make sense of some of Jesus' more sticky comments. So let's take a look at a few of those, shall we? It's going to be fun. I promise it's going to be fun. Okay, so turn ahead with me to Matthew chapter 8. In this moment, Jesus is welcoming in a few of his disciples, and he happens upon this, or a few new disciples, and he happens upon this one guy who has the most legit excuse imaginable, it would seem. Matthew 8, verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, we just began a new Alpha course in this church a couple of days ago, and this building was flooded with people who were not sure what they think about Jesus of Nazareth, and they were here to consider his claims and decide what to make of him. And if around the table in that conversation on that first night, one of the guests had voiced that they were grieving the loss of a father recently, and then the table leader had said, forget the funeral, we're here to talk about the Savior of the world, let the dead bury their own dead, follow Jesus! we would have had a pastoral follow-up about tact and empathy, right? <laughs> so what's up, Jesus? There is some scholarly consensus around the likelihood that this man isn't actually grieving a recent loss, but that he is delaying his discipleship to Jesus until his father dies. Meaning, he's hanging at home until some future point when he has collected Papa's inheritance, but after that, apprenticeship to Jesus does sound interesting. The shock of Jesus' words here is not that they're insensitive to a young man in the midst of his bereavement, but that they are diametrically opposed to the first century Jewish family value that held blood loyalty over everything else. Jesus is calling this man to the most subversive act imaginable. Radically exchange your father's fami your familial authority for my familial authority because I'm setting up a new family on the earth. And exchange your father's inheritance for my inheritance because it's the only one you can keep anyway and it's worth everything you've got. In the end, Jesus is offering him the bargain of a lifetime, but in the moment, it's a tall order and a radical exchange, and that's what salvation is, right? It's a tall order and a radical exchange, absolutely. And in the end, it's the bargain of a lifetime. Turn just another page to Matthew 10. I'll meet you there in just a minute after a quick detour into Mark's gospel. So, there's an interesting interaction that unfolds between Jesus and Peter about the implications that point forward to this new family that Jesus is creating in the ancient world. Then Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution, there Jesus goes, fine print. You gotta watch this guy. Everything's positive. He's like, and persecution. <laughs> the disciples are like, did he say persecutions? It felt encouraging. Did anyone catch it? And persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. 
So Jesus is calling for the most radical of exchanges here, to trade the highest relational group loyalty to pledge myself instead to this new family. But in the end, it'll be the bargain of a lifetime. He says himself, 100 times as much as you gave up. Which begs the question, is Jesus talking about now or is he talking about heaven? Is he talking about this life or is he talking about eternity? And by now, you know that the answer with Jesus is always yes. Only this time, Jesus makes that extremely clear to us. He says himself, in this present age and in the age to come, no one who leaves behind family authority, brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children, and family inheritance, fields, will fail to receive 100 times as much. Do you hear the echo of let the dead bury their own dead here? It's the same sentiment communicated in a different way. Hang on to this. All right, Matthew chapter 10. So Jesus is sending out the 12 two by two. This is a very exciting moment. It's the first time he's kicking his disciples out of the nest to communicate his message of power and love without him standing right there over their backs. And all of it sounds really, really exciting right up until verse 21 when Jesus slips this into their instructions. Brother will betray brother unto death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. What could this possibly mean? What else could it possibly mean other than that Jesus is saying that his kingdom is in direct conflict with the pre-existing loyalties within the world that his kingdom is coming? The loyalties that existed in his ancient world and the loyalties that exist in our modern world. Slide down just a few verses to verse 37 in the same chapter, and you'll see Jesus double down on this idea. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. How could the same God who authored the Ten Commandments about honoring father and mother come and say something like this? Because the issue isn't mom or dad, brother or sister. The issue is the culturally driven loyalties you hold that you must surrender to my kingdom. This is about the impossibility of apprenticeship to Jesus if you're going to hold on to competing loyalties and try to drag them in with you. It just so happens that in Jesus' world, those competing loyalties are mom and dad, brother and sister. So what are the competing loyalties in our world? that we try to drag in with us to apprenticeship with Jesus. Because when the king comes, every knee must bow. Turn just one more page and you're gonna be back in that rural Israelite village in that living room where the rabbi was teaching and then his mom and brothers showed up. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So let's pick this passage apart now with the context that we've gained along the way. And I want to look at it through two dichotomies. First, what Jesus said and what Jesus didn't say. And then we'll look at it again as what Jesus defied and what Jesus endorsed. So first, what Jesus said and what Jesus didn't say. Jesus said, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus calls his own followers brother and sister 
and mother, the family unit, the most profoundly deep, loyal, rich connection in his world. That's what he just said. What didn't he say? Well, there is one missing role here in the family unit. Did you notice? What didn't he say? Father. Jesus doesn't call any of his followers father. Why not? For whoever does the will of my father in heaven. Because Jesus has a father. He talks about this father all over the gospels. God himself is his father. You see, Jesus is saying, I've come to start a new family, one just like I created at first, one looks like, who looks like the image of the God who is in community, unified. And my family is taking brothers and sisters and mothers, but we don't need a father. We've already got a father. And it's not the only time he says it. Back in that conversation with Peter when he was promising the radical exchange and the bargain of a lifetime, what didn't he say? Did you notice? Jesus says, whoever leaves home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields will gain a hundred times as much homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. He repeats himself verbatim with one missing role. Father. Why? Because you're multiplying your inheritance in his family in every way but one. Father. That's an exchange. One for one. It's a radical exchange, the most radical exchange imaginable in the first century world, and it's the bargain of a lifetime. When you say yes to me, Jesus is saying, you come into a new family, one with one father and many siblings. So that's what Jesus said and didn't say. Now let's look at the passage again through what Jesus defied and what Jesus endorsed. Jesus defied the social fabric of his world. In ancient Israel, after the death of a father, the oldest son was responsible to carry on the family name and defend the family honor. There was nothing more important than that. There was no other relationship, no vocation, no privilege, or no obligation more important than that role. Jesus is the oldest son. Joseph, his earthly father, has passed away. His mother and brothers are now outside, and Jesus just defied that role the most important role, and he did it in public. If you thought Jesus was being rude, it's worse than you think. This isn't about manners. He's tearing apart the social fabric of the first century world that he's come into. But he's not doing it to deconstruct. He's doing it to recreate. Pointing it to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. The strongest social bond in his world, brother and sister, bound by blood loyalty. That's how tightly Jesus is tying himself to anyone and everyone who will call God Father. As scandalous as the denial of his family was, the endorsement of this new family is all the more scandalous. Pfft. Isn't this fun? Am I the only one? I'm, if I'm the only one, I just want to say thank you so much for staying in the room, letting me have this moment in front of you today. I'm having a fantastic time. Okay. Jesus is announcing the new birth of a family in the midst of the world, and he's doing it in, in the language of family, which is the furthest thing from an overused trope in his world. It's a revolution in every sense of the word. Family is so overused today, it's nearly lost all of its meaning. Right, the Portland Trailblazers family, the WeWork family, 
You know how that one turned out. The, the couple friends you lived with for 18 months after college that called yourselves a family. Family can be a group of roommates or colleagues in a workplace or fans of the same sports team these days. These days, family gets applied to the most shallow and quickly expiring parts of our lives, our tastes, preferences, and most interchangeable relationships. Family, by definition, is the exact opposite of that. It is deep and permanent and defining. Right, I can disown my father and refuse to ever speak to him again for the rest of my life, but I'll still have his nose, his eyes, and his mannerisms. I can say I'm never going to talk to you again, but I'll never stop talking like him. Jesus is planting a flag for a new family right in the middle of a rural Israelite living room. And this is a family that's going to redefine me at the deepest level. It's one that will permanently write me into the unchangeable bloodline of the Redeemer himself. And it's one that will even over time cause me to bear resemblance to the Father. This isn't a trope or a cute metaphor. This is a revolution. A revolution that redefines us at the deepest level, reunites us at the deepest level, and makes demands of us at the deepest level. It may surprise you, friends, to learn that the terms personal savior and personal relationship with Jesus Christ appear nowhere on the pages of scripture. In fact, we don't meet a single unchurched Christian in the entirety of the New Testament. Apprenticeship to Jesus was understood as birth into a new family with one father and many siblings the most tight-knit kind of community imaginable. The second century bishop, Cyprian of Carthage, wrote, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. And there was that one time when Jesus told that story, you know, that famous story about leaving the 99 to go after the one. So he is concerned with individuals. He does seek us out and save us as individuals. But the good shepherd doesn't build a fence around the place the sheep got lost and then stay near them so that they feel safe. The good shepherd picks the sheep up, carries them back to the 99, and restores them to the fold. Meaning that new life, salvation, conversion, to speak as explicitly as possible, is a new birth into a new family. And this family's got one father, and it's got a whole lot of brothers and sisters. You've gained both. You don't get to have one without the other. That's not the way family works. The theologian T. Wright says the only explanation for Jesus' astonishing command is that he envisioned loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family. Sin is a condition with both vertical and horizontal consequences. And because sin has ripped a two-part divide, salvation brings a two-part reunification. Vertical and horizontal reunification. That's what Jesus has won for us, depicted in one single metaphor, family. In the words of Joseph Hellerman, American evangelicalism is a community in crisis, and it will remain such as long as we fail to recapture the biblical understanding of salvation as a community-creating event. Now, turn ahead with me to Acts chapter 4, because we got one last bite of redemption, and it's the moment that we're living in now, which we'll call church. Church, uh, the church was born on the day of Pentecost when many peoples from many tribes speaking many different languages all responded to this one God in community. And then they did not go home to plant many different churches in their respective tribes. They started one church. 
And in this one church, as we already recited together earlier this morning, they ate together, they shared everything they had, they sold off the family inheritance to meet one another's needs, they opened their homes to each other, and they worshiped regularly in the temple with gratitude and devotion. This one church started imitating one family. Pentecost salvation was a whole lot more than a few thousand people all discovering a personal relationship with Jesus Christ on the same day. It was a community-creating event, vertically reconciled to God, horizontally reconciled to one another, and that was a disruptive event to the family and tribal units that had gathered for the Pentecost celebration in Jerusalem, but that disruption was to create union. And the family that was born from that event immediately started acting like family in ways that redefine us, reunite us, and make demands on us. Take a look at Acts chapter 4. I'm going to begin in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. The very next verse gets even more specific. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned. What did Jesus say to Peter that he would gain in this present age and the age to come? Mothers, brothers, sisters fields. I told you to hang on to that. This is an eternal promise. It's one that we will inherit forever when we're in his presence. And it's a present promise, one that we inherit right now today in his new family. This chart is borrowed from Joseph Hellerman's book, When the Church Was a Family, and it highlights the extraordinary frequency of family terminology that we read in Paul's New Testament letters. The majority of the references cited on this chart refer to passages where Paul is talking about the church as the new family of Jesus. This is more than just a cute way to refer to each other. It is a socio-political revolution being born. In the modern church, we tend to understand God's new family positionally, but not relationally. Meaning we believe that we've entered into a new and eternal family in a very real way that is filled with brothers and sisters whom we will live with forever, but we don't relate to one another in the revolutionary way of brothers and sisters right now. And that's tragic because it takes Jesus' promises to Peter, which were for this present age and the age to come eternal life, and makes them only about the age to come eternal life. It's an already and not yet promise, and we're waiting on it, but we're not tasting it here and now in the already sense. Relationally, the early church narratives center largely on the communal sharing of resources, and the reason for that is because that was the most definitive way of radically relating as family in the ancient world where the church began. That was a way to know one another that would redefine us and reunite us and make demands on us. Which makes me wonder, what are the relational equivalents of our time? What are the ways that we might relate to one another that would most profoundly redefine us, reunite us, and make demands on us? Well, I think we are redefined by blessing. Performance is to us today what family status was to the ancients. 
And in the biblical world, your surname and your relationships determined your reputation, your access, and your social power. And in the modern world, your performance determines all of those. Right? What you do uh, and how successful you are at what you do, how much influence you garner for what you do, that gets you places or it doesn't. Encouragement is a word we use when I notice and name something good about what you do. Blessing is a biblical word for noticing and naming something good about who you are. In both ancient Hebrew and Greek, the word blessing means to speak the intention of God over someone. So encouragement is me saying, Bethany, you just preached a brilliant sermon. Blessing is me saying, Bethany, you are an incredible friend. Do you see the difference? One of those is about performance. One is about identity. Both are good, but blessing cuts through the performance-addicted culture that we live in and defines us the way that God does. Blessing is a way that I can partner with God in letting my words speak His voice, redefining you at the deepest level in His image, and it's a way you can do the same for me. So there's blessing, and then I think we're reunited by time. Modern psychological studies find that the number one practice for cultivating empathy in the human person, from children all the way up to the elderly, is reading fiction. And in fact, a decline in human empathy coincides with the decline in the sales of novels in American culture. But somehow, watching a television series or a film doesn't cultivate empathy within us at the same pace that reading fiction does. Why is that? Uh, psychologically speaking, the common answer today is time. Because to read a novel is to devote time to entering a story and entering the lives of the characters within that story. It is to choose to visit those characters on a consistent basis over a long period of time. And the time that is devoted to reading a novel is typically greater and more frequent than the time devoted to watching a television series or taking in a film. The reading the life of a fictional character creates empathy because you enter into that person's story, you walk in their shoes, and you feel what they feel, and you do it very regularly and consistently, and you do it over a long period of time. And the same thing is true for nonfiction characters, meaning real people. Right? Time is modern currency. Time is money in the world that we live in. A devotion of time creates empathy and compassion. When we show up in each other's lives and we show up consistently and unhurried, when we show up consistently over a long period of time, something happens. We start to view one another differently because we enter into each other's lives more deeply and we share burdens and experiences. We begin to empathize with one another. In this family, the way that we give time to enter into consistently and over a long period of time is through Bridgetown communities. So a smaller group of people from this church gathers around my table every Tuesday. And we show up on hectic Tuesdays and stressful Tuesdays, on fun Tuesdays and boring Tuesdays. There we are together. We keep showing up and keep listening to one another, keep praying for one another, keep offering our presence to one another, keep giving our time to one another because that is the soil where empathy grows. It's where God can heal us, where he can make us one even as he is one, to borrow a phrase from Jesus. 
This is how we read one another's lives, entering into consistently and deeply. And this is how you become more than just a recurring character in a story where I play the lead, but I actually become a deeply invested reader within your own story. So there's blessing, there's time, and then finally, nothing makes demands on us more costly than forgiveness. Cancel culture appears to be here to stay. Right? We live in a world where people just write each other off. Tim Keller's final book is simply titled Forgive, and it points out that much of what passes under the banner of justice in our world today is not the Jesus expression of justice because it is filled with accusation apart from the willingness and even desire to forgive. And don't misunderstand me here. Jesus is a justice warrior. He cares more than you or I ever will about defending victims and righting wrongs and arriving at equity. But the new family of Jesus, within that family, it's one where we forgive. Yeah, but to what point? I mean, how much is too much? 70 times 7? As much forgiveness as it takes. Because the way that we bear his image increasingly in this family is by forgiving one another and receiving the forgiveness of one another, not never having to. So we're going to land today in Revelation 21. Will you turn with me all the way to the end of your Bibles now? All the way to the very last page. Creation, fall, redemption, and then renewal. Revelation 21, I'm going to begin in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then He said, Write this down, for the words are, these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This family, the one with one father and many siblings, it's an eternal kind of family. It's one that deeply, fully finally redefines us at the deepest level and reunites us at the deepest level and makes demands that set us free at the deepest level. And one that we never grow old in, one that we never age out of, one that we never rebel against and never become bored or tired of, but live endless days in perfect union. And all of this, my friends, is just one big introduction. Because today is the beginning of a new teaching series simply titled Community. As always, on your way in today, you were offered a bookmark that includes some recommended reading should you want to go deeper into the theme of this teaching series or any of maybe the sub-themes within it. Joseph Hellerman's work particularly has been so essential for everything I've walked you through today that he should probably be the one preaching this sermon, not me. And this series is going to unfold in the weeks to come in three major parts. First, we're going to define community biblically as gift, witness, and formation. Then we're going to explore the relationships that make up the new family of Jesus within a community through church, and then friendship, and finally the home. And then we'll talk about practices for actually becoming a new family of Jesus kind of community, like wonder, and reconciliation, and conflict, and reconciliation across lines of class, and culture, and ethnicity. But all of this is built on the foundation of the new family of Jesus. 
Because to follow Jesus requires the surrender of all of the competing loyalties that we carry. But this family he's creating, it's one where you get 100 times return on whatever it is that you lay down. So the community guide for getting all this stuff lived in Bridgetown communities this week is up right now on our website at bridgetown.church teaching. But here's where I want to land today. We're going to ring all this out, all the implications of this in the coming nine Sundays. So why don't we just start right here? What if you were to commit over the coming 10 weeks to know the family of Jesus meaning the siblings that you're surrounded by right now if you call Jesus Lord and God Father? What if you commit just for 10 weeks, that's 70 days of your life, to know them as brother and sister, not just positionally, but relationally? If you choose to define your brothers and sisters by blessing, if you simply commit that your mouth will be a pure spring water that that will be used for blessing and not for gossip and that your ears will be set aside for receiving the blessing of others because we need both to join God in redefining and to be redefined by our brothers and sisters echoing his voice to us and what if you choose to unite yourself to your brothers and sisters by time and that'll look different from every one of us but you just choose I'm going to sacrificially give of my time Maybe that means joining a Bridgetown community or finally getting around to having dinner with that one couple that we've been meaning to get to know or getting together for coffee with that one guy that you've been meaning to get together for coffee with for so long now. And then finally to receive the freeing demand to forgive and be forgiven within this new family. Is there someone within this church that as we begin this journey you need to forgive? Is there someone that you need to be forgiven by? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So commit to knowing the new family of Jesus, not just positionally, but right here, right now, relationally. And I just wonder, is God bringing someone or something to mind for you right now?